Yeah, I'm, I'm Michael Bray. Uh, I, I teach philosophy at a, at a small liberal arts college outside of Austin, Texas, called Southwestern University. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. My name is Michael Bray. And my, my paper, um, it's, it's kind of a preliminary effort to map out some thoughts about nationalism and internationalism as part of a book project on populism that, that I'm working on. Um, so I'll start. Uh, near the close of the second section of the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels respond to the accusation that communists desire to abolish countries and nationality with a famous epigram. The workers have no country. We cannot take from them what they have not got. Somewhat less famous and less epigrammatic is the sentence that follows. Since the proletariat must first of all acquire political supremacy, must rise to be the leading class of the nation, must constitute itself the nation. It is so far itself national, though not in the bourgeois sense of the word." End quote. The final lines of their response express what can today only appear as a mistaken mid-19th century hope. Quote, national differences and antagonisms between people, between peoples, are daily more and more vanishing, end quote, due to the rise of a world market. The rule of the proletariat, they say, will hasten that process. In short order, then, we have workers with no country, a proletariat that must constitute itself the nation, and a proletarian rule that will hasten a process of denationalization believed to be intrinsic to capital. This paper proposes to reflect, in the ambiguous space established by those claims, on the tendency of both liberal and leftist analyses to equate all forms of contemporary populist political forms with the nationalism and xenophobia, a pathological betrayal of either the cosmopolitanism of financial flows, the tolerance of liberal individuals, or the internationalism of the proletariat. The overlaps here might prompt more skepticism than they sometimes do, and the emphatic abstraction of certain forms of internationalism may reflect a failure to reckon with the ambiguities posed by the manifesto. For Marx and Engels' mistaken hope at the moment of its writing appears to follow from the assumption that the global and the national are intrinsically opposed. But what if the nation is itself less national than is generally assumed? What light might that cast on the national popular and the unity of the workers of the world who, having no country, must constitute themselves nations? What defines abstract forms of internationalism, I think, is their concept of the nation. They merely invert a methodological nationalism which presupposes nations' existence without historically comprehending, quote, this is a quote from Manu Goswami, the specific global field within and, again with, and against which specific nationalist movements emerged, end quote. For the abstract internationalist, the nation is presupposed as an autarkic substantiality only to be denounced as an ideological fiction that can be directly subtracted from anti-capitalist politics. But this obscures rather than explains what Manu Goswami describes as, quote, the internal relations between nationalism, the contradictory dynamics of global capitalism, and the relational character of intra- and interstate fields. The global spread of the nation form, its modularity, was not a function of ideological imitation, in other words, but the structural and discursive counterpart to the complex, uneven, and contradictory expansion and reproduction of capitalist social relations across the planet, an expansion undertaken through imperial and colonial projects, as well as the disordering effects that cheap commodities had on other regimes of production. The nation state, as we know it today, did not develop to mask these processes, 
but was a reciprocal effect of them, an articulation across, disti across distinct conjunctures of their uneven development. For example, it was the expanding British imperial project and the threat it posed for other ascendant zones of production, Germany, the United States, France, Russia, Japan, which prompted a conscious, this is another quote from Gaswami, quote, a conscious attempt to fabricate a state-protected economic space and to effect a degree of closure from a Britain-centered global economy, end quote. These nationalizing fabrications extended to colonial territories like India, where the imperial administration of production, money, and finance intensified in response to indigenous resistance. Producing a more or less homogeneous territorial order, imperial control also produced the conditions through which its political supremacy would come to be contested. The idea of post-colonial nations with unifying institutions and cultural traditions was, quote, again from Goswami, rooted within rooted. Sorry, let me say that sentence over. The idea of post-colonial nations with unifying institutions and cultural traditions was, quote, rooted within rather than outside the experiential and structural contradictions of colonial domination, end quote. As structural to capitalist empire, the contradictions driving particular national movements were also more or less universal, defining potentials and dilemmas for resistance globally. In the aftermath of World War II, the partitioning of empires, the formation of the United Nations, Bretton Woods restrictions on the movement of financial capital across national borders, import substitution regimes in Latin America, and anti-colonial nationalisms in Asia and Africa defined a conjuncture of, of Keynesianism and development, intensifying processes of national unification by orienting investment and production towards domestic rather than foreign markets, while spreading growth more evenly across the national territory. These Cold War era projects, as Gillian Hart calls them, represented the high point of nationalization before they began to collapse in the face of a declining rate of profit and new forms of US imperialism and financialization. If the 20th century story of nations begins and ends with imperialism, it may well be because the nation state is, as Sandra Halpern has argued, quote, not so much the successor to imperial or city, imperial or city states, but itself a form of the European imperial city state that had driven the expansion of capitalism in previous centuries, end quote. The high point of this national form defined by internal investment and redistribution, was a political accommodation, Halpern argues, forced by workers' efforts to acquire political supremacy. These efforts not only implicated workers in the trajectories of nation states, but also reshaped the character of national identities of the nation peoples, for better or for worse. At the same time, simply asserting an identity between national and imperial states is problematic, precisely because of the modular extension of national forms to colonial contexts. In those cases, the efforts of workers to constitute themselves a nation involved attempts to break the links with imperialism and neocolonialism, and the forms of nationalism fabricated sought, at least initially, to expand their parameters to a transformation of the global processes constituting empires and nations, fostering revolutions elsewhere, forging regional federations, or using the UN as a platform to foster a global redistribution project modeled on national ones. These projects sought, in other words, to transform the character of nation peoples so they might become levers through which to intervene in the global conjunctures forcing forms of national economy reconstruction. 
Here, as Frederick Cooper argues, quote, the historical experience of empire, a large entity that was both incorporative and differentiating, remained a point of departure as long as the principle of equality could be assured throughout the polity. Were these projects doomed to fail, or do they offer continuing models for thought and practice today? A full reckoning with that question would need to account not only for the uneven and combined relation of imperial states, colonies, and neo-colonies in global conjectures, but likewise for the class relations internal to each nation, and the complications of those relations by imperial projects. For example, imperial political economies have ensured that the working classes in wealthy countries receive, through unifying nation-state projects, part of the value extracted from neo-colonies, while elites in, in post-colonial gatekeeper states also extract their share. At the same time, the legacy of racialization and white supremacy that colonialism bequeathed is articulated through the homogenizing function of capitalist states, Every nation is a racial nation, every people nation, a fictive ethnicity, as Balibar describes them. The global processes in which nations are fabricated and reproduced, then, are not ones that happen above or beyond the working classes or the racialized. Rather, they are, they are immersed in those processes, albeit in subaltern positions. As Poulancis argues, the, quote, the modern nation is not the creation of the bourgeoisie, but the outcome of a relationship of forces between the modern social classes, one in which the nation is at stake for the various classes, as well as races, genders, and so on. The nation state, as the historical condensation of both the uneven development of global capital and class struggle, defines the history of capitalist class struggle as both international and national in complex interrelation. There is no original international essence of class or race or anything else that is then ideologically filtered into national specificities. And so an international politics can only begin in relation to a national popular common sense Quote, this is a brief quote from Peter Thomas's book on Gramsci, hysterically overdetermined by a past that can neither be comprehended nor laid to rest. That past, as Poulantzis puts it, has been, quote, plowed from one end to the other by the working class and popular struggle and resistance. Struggles over the national state thus involve the reappropriation by the working class of its own history, an effort to render it coherent. At the same time, race and nation remain modes in which those whom the structures systematically exploit, exclude, and subordinate discover themselves as exploited, excluded, and subordinated classes, complicating any such reappropriation. As James Baldwin puts it, the black person in the United States is American, but in a manner that defines him as outside of the national history of which he is also a part. Quote, he has arrived at his identity by virtue of the absoluteness of his estrangement from the past, end quote. Yet this estrangement is not so much the absence of a history as it is the ongoing memory and lived experience of the colonial and imperial histories that fabricated nations, their continuing operations in and through conjunctural reproductions of nationalized spaces. The reappropriation of a national history from below might then simultaneously be the reappropriation of the imperial one. The retreat from post-war national settlements has fostered a new global conjuncture, characterized, as Gillian Hart argues, by, quote, simultaneous practices and processes of denationalization and renationalization. As nation states adapt to the free movements of global finance and the adjustment programs of international IGOs, they prompt revivified nationalisms of variegated forms. 
I want to close by briefly reflecting on two such forms that cast light on the potentials and dangers of such processes in popular politics today. The first takes the form of what Paul Gilroy calls post-colonial melancholia. For Gilroy, in the context of Britain, such melancholia represents a failure to come to terms with the meaning of empire and its loss. The, law, the quote, loss of a fantasy of omnipotence forces people's confrontation with the brutalities enacted in their name and to their benefit, undergoing a sudden and radical loss of their moral legitimacy, end quote. But as soon as that process began, it came to a halt. Quote, once the history of empire becomes a source of discomfort, shame, and perplexity, its complexities and ambiguities were readily set aside. A kind of collective schizoid defense mechanism sets in. The good object of the nation, divorced from its imperial entanglements, is idealized. The bad object of alien intruders, cut off from an imperial past that might explain their, their presence, becomes the projected cause of denationalization. Such defenses obscure the fact that these are the same object, that strangers have played key roles in shaping the cultural and social forms from which melancholic fantasies attempt to remove them. Im Does that mean two minutes? I should be fine. Implicit in Gilroy's account is the insight that right-wing formations of the nation people are grounded in a disavowal of the internal relations between nations, the contradictory dynamics of global capitalism, and the inter- and intranational effects of imperialism, colonialism, and global capital. Their danger, in other words, is not, or at least not only, that they are nationalists, but that they are incoherently so, asserting a concept of the nation that belies its actual history. The defensive fabrication of national forms to protect the accumulation projects of local capitalists against imperial encroachments makes this an intrinsic possibility of every nation people. This is the bourgeois form of the national, which can encroach upon and fragment the perspective of dominated groups precisely because it also became a vehicle for identifying those worthy by citizenship or otherwise of receiving nationalizing social reproduction aid. But this also suggests that a coherent form of the national popular would be one grounded in the perspective of those excluded from the nation and oriented by its historical relations to imperialism. I've gestured towards the forms such struggles took in anti-colonial context before. There are also models internal to imperial states from the black radical tradition to indigenous and migrant labor movements. Internationalism, cosmopolitanism, and attention to the global chains and consequences of capital has always been an intrinsic and central component of such movements, but they have also generally been in their bids for political supremacy or transformation directed at the nation state and as attempted reconfigurations of the nation people. This is not a failing, though it is surely a limit of such struggles. It is a function of the uneven and contradictory global national terrain on which anti-capitalist struggles take place. And of the fact that, as, as Marx argued, some form of general political action is necessary for the proletariat insofar as, quote, in its merely economic action, capital is the stronger side. General here cannot be wholly separated from the general and particular character of the nation form. Still, a national popular that also exceeds the nation will refuse to merely substitute demos for ethnos, but rather reappropriate the history of nation as an empire or a colony, 
from the perspective of those subjects to, of, I'm sorry, from the perspective of those subject to imperial regimes of expropriation and exploitation, casting the pro, quote, the problem of national universalism from the vantage point of the black, the oppressed, and the unfree. To assert this is not, of course, to name a solution, but to define a site for reflection and experimentation, while warding off reflex dismissals of all struggles for political supremacy in relation to nation states, or for delinking from international flows and institutions as inherently regressively nationalist. Forms of the national popular may be intrinsic aspects of bids for political supremacy, unless one wants to win only in the world of abstractions. Walter? Uh, okay. Um, when we started, I was commenting that it looked like the three papers had been kind of glommed together under the heading of imperialism and the nation state. Well, Chris says that his and Michael's might overlap a good deal. I noticed some overlap with Michael's, but um, I still adhere to my original opinion, basically. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm retired from uh, teaching mathematics at City College in New York. I'm a member of the League for the Revolutionary Party, a small, unorthodox Trotskyist organization. That's by way of identification. Um, I'm working on a long project, probably a book, on the nature of imperialism today. And this was inspired, in particular, by the work of uh, John Smith and Andy Higginbottom, two English uh, Marxists. Uh, and in particular, John Smith's book and the thesis that, that led up to it called Imperialism of the 21st Century, where he called attention to uh, a dramatic shift in global production over the last, over my lifetime, for example. In 1950, there were about twice as many industrial workers in the imperialist countries, the rich countries of the so-called global north, than, uh, in, than in, the, in the rest of the world. By 1980, it was more or less half and half, and, and today, 80% of the world's industrial workers are in the poor countries, the imperialized countries of, of the global south. That's a dramatic uh, change. Super exploitation, and that's because those workers are super exploited, paid wages considerably less than what imperialists have to, or capitalists have to pay in their home countries. That, I think, was driven by the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, uh, but I don't want to go into that theoretical background here, but just to discuss the, the nature of super-exploitation. It has two faces. Um, there are uh, imperialism imp imports immigrant workers, many of them undocumented or otherwise restricted, into their own countries. And there's also the export of production to the uh, low-wage countries of, of the global south. <clears throat> Both methods allow capitalists to acquire cheap labor and thereby drive down the wages of normally exploited workers as well. And towards this, these ends, even though the flow of workers from south to north is enormous, immigration restrictions by imperialist countries serve both to keep undocumented immigrant workers passive as far as uh, working class action goes and to force workers in the oppressed countries to stay at home as a gigantic reserve army of labor that keeps the uh, the wage rate down there. The degree of exploitation is lower for those uh, workers from the south who managed to get to the north, but it nevertheless is still, still significant. Um, just as a side point, um, where does the word super-exploitation come from? Uh, everybody thinks it comes from Lenin. 
Because he talked about super prophets and things like that. As far as I know, it doesn't. He never, never used the term, or at least his English translations never use, never used the term. I think it was first uh, uh, used by Latin American economists in the 1960s and 70s, notably um, Roy Mauro Marini, who wrote uh, a great deal about super exploitation, Latin American Soviet imperialism, and, and so forth. Um, I put up on the wall, because I have no idea what kind of projection facilities a high school would have, a quotation, um, which, uh, let me read it out. It says, if China should become a great manufacturing country, I do not see how the manufacturing population of Europe, that is the working class population, could sustain the contest without descending to their level of, of uh, to the level of their competitors. Um, anybody wonders who that is? It's not Marx. It's actually a British parliamentarian writing in the middle of the 19th century. But Marx comments on it approvingly. Uh, and, and Marx's comment uh, was, um, it's no longer a case of reducing English wages to the level of those of continental Europe, but to reduce in a future more or less close at hand the European level to the Chinese level. The wished for goal of English capital, and of course English capital at that time was world imperialist capital, um, the, only, the main capitalist power in the world, um, the wish-for goal of English capital is no longer continental wages, but Chinese. Given what's happening today, that's kind of remarkably um, foresightful, although except it hasn't happened, as Marx said, in, in, uh, in a future more or less close at hand. It's 150 years past, and it's, wages in the North have not been driven down to the wages of the South, and I doubt they can be, but that illustrates the capitalist standpoint. Um, and uh, from the capitalist standpoint, if a capitalist is able to increase the surplus value extracted from labor by dismissing workers in this country, say, to uh, labor in another country, he thereby raises the rate of exploitation, and quite extensively so. Um, so super exploitation should be regarded as reducing the wage substantially below the, label of, the value of labor power that capital has has, has become accustomed to pay in its home countries. And that's a definition I borrow from Andy Higginbottom. A big controversy in the discussion of super exploitation has been which workers are the most exploited. Um, there are a good many Marxists of different traditions who have argued that it's the workers in the imperialist countries or the wealthier countries of the global north that are more exploited than the workers in the, in the global south. A few, this goes back, the, the first um, person who I, who I'm aware has made that argument was Henrik Grossman, writing in the late 1920s, one of the classical Marxists uh, discussing imperialism roughly a century ago. But it's also been made by Ernest Mandel, by Charles Bettelheim, and by several writers in the international socialist uh, tradition, like Alex Kalinikos, and, and many others. I'll get to one. Um, but I think reality shows the opposite. There have been many studies, uh, calculations, um, showing in fact that the rate of exploitation is higher in the global south, and considerably so. Uh, and usually the claim that, that, that the rate of exploitation is higher in the north is not argued. It just assumed that it's the case, and I'll explain a bit why that, that's assumed. 
but uh, writers, again, academic writers of, of different political persuasions. For example, Timothy Kurzweil, Martin Landsberg, Alice Amsden have produced data uh, showing that in particular industries, in particular countries, the rate of exploitation in the poor countries is not just higher, but much higher. And there is um, one uh, pair of, of, of uh, Latin American economists who studied the, I think it was the automobile industry in Mexico, expecting to find that, uh, that the, the workers there were <coughs> less exploited than the workers in the north, and found to their surprise, which is, and, and they said so, they showed the data that it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the other way around. Very little data has been used to try to argue the other way. One of them is by the um, international, one of the founders of the International Socialist Tendency, Michael Kidron, who argued by comparing Indian wages to British wages and productivity. Um, this was back in the 1960s or 70s that he wrote this, um, saying that, well, um, wages, uh, comparative wages between England and India were two to one, whereas comparative uh, uh, productivity was four to one. Therefore, the British workers produce more in the same time than, than uh, the Indian workers do. However, he based his argument on, as to what the wages were and how much the wages could buy. That is, in, in, uh, like this kind of PPP, as it's called, um, establishment. What's, what is that, parity? Uh, purchasing power, power, purchasing power, power. Sorry? Purchasing power, power. Purchasing power, parity, right. Rather than, and uh, actually, the, the cost that the capitalists have to pay, which is uh, determined by exchange rates. Um, and if you look at the, at the exchange rates, uh, the wages in India are one-seventh, or were one-seventh, uh, than, than in England, and therefore the, the choice goes, the balance goes the other way. Um, now, why do so many um, Marxists argue that um, the rate of exploitation is higher in the wealthier countries than in the poor countries? Um, I, I have several reasons. One of them, and perhaps the most uh, common one, is that Marx seems to have said that himself. Um, in Capital, Marx uh, compares um, production in a continental country, France or Germany, with production in, in England. And he points out that the state of, of industry in France or Germany is some years behind what it is in, in England. And therefore, as, as we know, um, or as Marx has argued, in time, the rate of exploitation tends to rise because uh, capitalist productivity increases the um, uh, or, or cheapens the values of, 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 of wage goods that constitute the worker's wage, and therefore, over time, uh, more of the living labor that, that, that workers, uh, uh, workers produce is devoted to surplus value rather than to variable capital, um, uh, their, their wage rate. Um, and so Marx was saying, well, France and Germany are more or less where England was some years ago, so uh, as they develop, they will reach, in, uh, they will become more productive, their wages, their, their rate of exploitation will go up. But of course, France and Germany were following England, more or less, as, uh, but the poor countries of today are not following the imperialist countries. The wages of Chinese workers or Bangladeshi workers or Mexican work or Mexican work are not where American workers were 10 or 20 years ago or any any time at all at all recently. 
It's a, it's a completely mis, misleading argument. It's seemingly justified by, by citing Marx, but uh, you know, it's, it's not actually true. Uh, another, another illusion that produces this point of view is what you might call the productivity um, illusion. Let me just read one person who, has it, who expresses this. By virtue of the higher value of the means of production and raw materials set in motion, on average, by workers in developed countries, they are more exploited despite their higher living standards than those who use less sophisticated technologies. That is, workers in the richer countries produce more. But a lot of what they produce is based on the constant capital that they set into motion. If you remember Marx's subdivision of the output of a capitalist enterprise, C plus V plus S, which key is the C is the constant capital co uh, component, and V and S are the wage component and the surplus value. The rate of surplus value is a, is a ratio of S over V. It does not involve C. So no matter how much constant capital the workers actually transform from one form into their output, that doesn't change the, the rate of, of surplus value. Um, so that's, that's another um, kind of argument. Another illusion is one that John Smith takes up considerably, what he calls the captured surplus value illusion, namely that value produced in the poor countries like China shows up as value produced in the United States. When um, Apple hires Foxconn to, pr to produce its objects, it pays Foxconn very little for what the uh, workers produce. And then Apple gets the bulk of the profits by contract with, with Foxconn. So it appears that Apple's profits is earned in the United States, whereas actually the surplus value is produced in China and elsewhere. And another, I guess my fourth illusion, um, illusion that, that people fall into is from, um, shown by, that, that's, that's, that's two, two minutes up. Um, I'll just say this one quickly, by Michael Roberts, who is normally a very uh, useful and intelligent blogger on economic questions. Roberts argues that if this low wage is maintained in the oppressed countries, workers must eventually accept a lower value of labor power in the goods and services they can buy with it in that sense, super-exploitation becomes simply a higher level of normal exploitation because the value of labor power has been lowered. Yes, more exploitation, but he says not super-exploitation as a new category. But if we think about that, what he's actually saying, if capitalists are victorious in the class struggle worldwide and everybody's and super-exploitation becomes the norm, then super-exploitation doesn't exist because now it's now normal. Um, I think that's a kind of silly argument, but nevertheless, it's, that's one of the arguments um, that you see. I'd like to get to my conclusion, even my, the time the time is running out. Um, even though the vast increase in the number of super-exploited workers allows workers in the oppressed countries to improve their wages through struggle, and we certainly see that happening in China and other places, um, few will escape super-exploitation altogether. And the more that, that some rise, the more other laborers in those regions will join the ranks of the super-exploited as capital shifts to where wages are even lower. And we see that with, with Chinese capital and imperialist capital in China moving from the coastal regions where there have been struggles to the interior regions of China and to, and to Vietnam, Bangladesh, and so forth. Super-exploitation will not be eliminated as long as capitalism survives. Indeed, capitalism will seek to drive normally exploited workers into the ranks of the super-exploited, even if it doesn't 
if it doesn't reach the, the level, the, the Chinese level that Marx was addressing then. Um, so we live at a time when exploitation and inequality have been raised to new heights, but it's also a time when the proletariat has become an international class as never before. For most of the past century, imperialism has been able to offer a decent standard of living to significant layers of the working class in its home countries. Today, it is showing the workers of even its home countries that those days are over, at the same time that it's creating and expanding an ever more oppressed and rebellious proletariat elsewhere. Marx wrote in 1867 that in order to oppose their workers, the employers either bring in workers from abroad or else transfer manufacture to countries where there is cheap labor, a cheap labor force. Given this state of affairs, if the working class wishes to continue its struggle with some chance of success, the national organizations must become international. And I'll leave it with that. Obviously, that echoes a point that Michael made about internationalism being necessary in this day and age. Thanks, Walter. Um, <clears throat> right. Uh, there's already enough for us to go ahead from, but I'm going to add to that. Uh, can you start me on the time? I'm Chris Gilligan. I'm over here from Scotland on a mini book tour, but I'm not very good at self-motion, so I've not been talking about my book at all. I've been talking about Brexit, because that's what people are interested in, that's what I'm interested in, that's what's happening at the moment. Uh, it's not very relevant to the book, but it's too convoluted to explain why it's not. I'm just going to concentrate on talking about Brexit. Uh, I've done a few different talks, I've been over since Tuesday, I've done a few different talks. Um, so some people in the room were at the talk I did on Blue Stockings and on Friday, the bookstore on Friday. Uh, some of what I'm going to say, be familiar, but you'll also see some development on from, from my thinking already, which is great because of the feedback I'm, I'm getting. Right, what I want to really look at is that uh, the Leave vote is represented as this is the will of the people. A majority of people voted to leave the EU. That is the will of the people. And those people who are, are trying to prevent the Leave from happening, the UK from leaving the EU, are anti-democratic. Uh, they're going against the will of the people. Right. I want to say that that's really simplistic and quite problematic in the way that it looks that, at the issue. And um, I think the Leave vote exposed inherent contradictions within the UK's unwritten constitution. There's at least four different contradictions I can identify that are exposed by the, the EU referendum. First one is what I call the citizenship contradiction. The, um, the Leave vote, the referendum to leave, was an ethno-national or actually even an ethno-imperial vote uh, because EU citizens were excluded from voting it. Commonwealth citizens weren't, UK citizens weren't, but, but EU citizens were excluded from it. So that vote is an ethno-national voter, right, that says, uh, right, so the majority was based on an ethno-national conception. Right. Whereas uh, the, the people who've been the, uh, mobilizing to, against the Leave vote, many of those are EU citizens who were excluded from uh, voting in the first place, 
Right? So there's two different conceptions, a civic conception, Republican participative conception of democracy, and an ethnic conception of democracy that are in conflict here. Uh, another contradiction is the United Kingdom contradiction. The UK is a United Kingdom of four parts, Northern Ireland, Scotland, England and Wales. Only two of those parts voted to leave, England and Wales. The most populous is England, so the majority vote is, is for, but two parts voted to leave. So we have the paradox that the national sovereignty holds out the potential to break up the nation because you've got conflict between the unitary state and the union state. That contradiction has been brought out in the, the Brexit vote. With the border control contradiction, Take back control of the borders was a big campaign, big, big slogan of the, the Leave campaign. As soon as the vote happens, people go, what about the border in Ireland? The backstop, lose control over the border. So there's a contradiction there in terms of the, the vote. And then the fourth thing is the, the democratic contradiction. So those who are arguing to uphold the, the Leave vote are saying this is direct democracy. The people voted directly on a question and they sent an instruction to their MPs to act on this instruction, leave the EU. Right, so direct democracy against, in opposition to representative democracy, that even though uh, a majority of the MPs in, in Parliament campaign for and support remain, they should act on these clear instructions that are directly given by the people. So there's a conflict set up there, a contradiction between representative democracy and direct democracy. I say that, um, I say that but it's, it is a real contradiction, and these are two poles that are not completely opposite to each other. So, represent the direct democracy, right, directly involved the people, but it was the representatives in Parliament who decided what the question was, the form the vote would take, who, you know, who's able to vote, who's not able to vote. So it's not it, uh, purely direct democracy. There is an element of representative democracy that's within that. Um, and the representative democracy does something a direct democracy can't, that form of direct democracy can't do because that was a form of direct democracy at one moment in time, for one day. After the vote happens, then it becomes clear what the limitations of that are because what does leave mean? It's not clear what leave means. And you can't, so the people who are saying this is what it means are interpreting what it means. They don't actually know what it meant. They don't know what was in people's minds when they, when they voted. Uh, so we have this contradiction uh, between uh, representative democracy and direct democracy. There's another element, because those MPs in Parliament who are to represent their constituents, they're representing their constituents, not the people who voted for them, their constituents. And a majority of people who voted, voted to leave, but not a majority of the country voted to leave because some people didn't vote at all. And they are constituents that need to be represented by their representatives in Parliament. So actually, those representatives who are saying, well, we want to revoke Article 50, are not being undemocratic in as far as they're representing the interests of their constituents. So, so there are these inherent contradictions that are coming out through the process of Brexit, and that's why, one of the reasons why it's so interminable. Um, right, but that, we have a contradiction, but how do we overcome that contradiction? That's, 
that's the the difficult question then. Um, this is where I was getting stuck before and trying to think this through. Uh, so the discussions have been in the, the responses to what I've been saying have been useful and uh, hoping I get more feedback that will help to develop this further. The, the left who critique the EU, they say that, um, and, and by the way, the, if there's a website, the Full Brexit, which is a left critique of the, of the EU. I think it's the, the best in the sense that it's the most thorough, thoughtful attempt to critique the EU. That's partly for your benefit. Thanks. Um, the, but the full Brexit, right? I completely disagree with them, but, <laughs> but it's, it's, they really are trying to, to be systematic in the way they're, they're thinking through. So I'll, I'll explain why I disagree with them. So they have a critique of the EU, and they say that the problem with the EU is that it's not... It, it prevents representative democracy taking place because uh, the, the British people are not sovereign as long as we have the EU because any decision that's made by the EU overrides UK law. Right? So it's the EU that's sovereign, not, not the British people. And they're arguing the need for popular sovereignty and they're saying unless we have powers brought back to Westminster, then the people's uh, choice is always... Uh, overridden by the EU. Right? So we need to have popular sovereignty by bringing powers back to Westminster. And the Leave vote from that perspective is a negation of representative democracy. It's a negation of the limitations of representative democracy. Saying there's a, so it's an internal critique of representative democracy that says this is a limit of it and we need to negate representative democracy as in the form that it's in the UK because it's, it's not doing enough, so representative democracy will break with that. But that's as far as they go. They're stuck on the first negation. They're not then, because as soon as the vote happens and people, there's a critique of the leave and of the direct representation by people like the three million EU citizens, groups representing the three million EU citizens, or those people who didn't vote who said, I would have voted Remain. Those protesters who come out, the, the biggest, some of the biggest protests in uh, London in recent years have been the, against leaving the EU. Uh, petitions, e-petitions sent to Parliament, there's an e-petition sent to Parliament that has, has garnered more than 6 million uh, votes to revoke Article 50. And when you consider that there's 17 million people that the the UK is leaving the EU on the basis of. That's phenomenal. Uh, so once the, 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 the vote's taken place, you get a, a critique against the Leave vote. But the, the left and the full Brexit don't go with that critique. What they say is this is an attempt to attack the, the referendum and what the people have said. Right? So they're defending that. And what that means is that at the, uh, after the vote's taken place, they still haven't differentiated themselves from the right, which is what happened before the referendum. Right. And so uh, the left critique, which is based on wanting popular sovereignty, um, is undifferentiated from the right's critique of the EU, which is about state sovereignty, about taking powers back to the state. So the, the, the UK state has control. It's not about bringing power back to the people. But through their failure to 
to look at that and to critique that and to take seriously the opposition to the referendum. Uh, the, the left Brexiteers are not having a fully developed critique. They're stopping at the, the first negation. And so they end up on the side of the right. And the more that they push that, the, that this is a betrayal of the people, the attack on the, the referendum, the more that they are attacking those working class people who voted to remain, the more they're attacking the three million who were excluded from voting and have been active. They're attacking those protesters on the border of Northern Ireland who are setting up checkpoints to say and blocking traffic and saying this is what leaving the EU is going to mean in Ireland. Um, uh, so, and the, those left Brexiteers of Artemis are against those groups that are protesting and on the side of the right who are arguing to leave the EU. So they're, they're finding themselves now on the side of the right and not differentiating themselves from the right any, in any way. So their arguments, the consequence of their argument is to suck in left-wing people uh, to confuse working class people about the, the people are being betrayed. Right? And this is the same narrative that's being presented by the far right, by Tommy Robinson, by UKIP, who are saying, developing this uh, version of stab in the back that the, the Nazis had in the 1930s. You know? uh, it was the, um, the left that got the, the, uh, the military to revolt in 1919. We could have won the war if it hadn't been for the left. You know, the, uh, the, the, we were stabbed in the back by the, uh, the imperial powers in uh, uh, Versailles, right, in this, this narrative. There's a version of that that's being developed by the right. And the, what the left are saying, the left Brexiteers are saying, dovetails with that rather than challenges that narrative. Right. Then there's another element that I, I just want to bring in. And... This is more speculative. Trump and Steve Bannon are very keen on Brexit. Why are they very keen on Brexit? Um, they're certainly not keen because they want more power to the people. So that's why, why is it that they're keen? And it does seem to be more from what Bannon's saying than because he actually articulates in full sentences rather than tweets. It's uh, two minutes. Right. Um, what it seems to be is that Bannon wants to collapse the institutions of liberal democracy and that the EU is a cornerstone of the rule of law and stability in Europe. That's why they want to uh, attack the, the EU and bring down the EU. And those left uh, Brexiteers who are continuing to argue uh, against the critique, uh, again, you know, and say uphold the, the referendum, are complicit in that process of the attacks on liberal democracy. They're doing it in the form of saying we're defending democracy, we're defending the people, but you don't just have to look at the form, you have to look at the content. What is actually, what is the content of Brexit? What does it represent rather than what you'd like it to represent? And that's why I think. Uh, the left Brexiteers are really dangerous because they don't make clear what's going on objectively. They, make, they present it in terms of what they would like 
they project that onto what's going on. Okay, thank you. Thank you.